0: This is going to sound like a strange Thanksgiving message, it really will. I started working on it this past August, planning to preach it today, not really sure why today. In all honesty, I wasn't really sure why I wanted to preach it. And then, over the course of this past week, I began to understand. It was God's timing. So hopefully, as we make our way through this, rather than you thinking, boy, that's just a weird Thanksgiving message, you'll stay with me all the way through it, and I'm going to try to bring it back around where it needs to be. I don't know if you have seen the headlines this past week on the internet or in the newspapers. I'm assuming if you've been awake at all, you're familiar with some of the things that have happened across the world. Starting a week ago Friday in Paris, there were some extremists that decided to attack that nation along the lines of what the United States of America suffered a few years ago on 9-11. It devastated their country It turned them upside down. Now, I'm proud of them because they responded very quickly. They didn't spend a lot of time in committee talking about what they needed to do. They knew who was responsible for the attacks, and they sent them a message. A week later, and this just happened yesterday, in the early hours of the morning, a little nation in Africa named Mali experienced something similar. Some Islamic extremist went into a hotel, started going room by room Putting a gun to people's heads and, according to some of the reports, forcing them to either quote from the Koran or die. If they couldn't quote from the Koran, they were presumed Christian and they took their lives. The last count I had was 27 dead. This morning, I heard that the Brooklyn subway was shut down under threats of terrorist attacks. The city of Amsterdam was shut down under the threat of terrorist attacks. It seems to be permeating our society in, in huge, unprecedented ways, literally in unprecedented ways. It's mind-boggling, startling to a lot of people as they're seeing these types of things happen, and the targeting, specific targeting of Christians is beyond comprehension for a number of people, especially within the church. Now, I can tell you that in my lifetime, I have seen Christians oppressed in a lot of different places, Behind the Iron Curtain, Christians had to sometimes worship only underground at the fear of losing their lives, and a number of them were killed. The nation of China has made it very difficult for Christians to openly worship God and profess their faith. That's been happening for a long time. Few missionaries have lost their lives through the years, but nothing like what we're seeing right now. Having watched this for several decades, I can tell you that I've never seen anything like it. Never seen the church having to go through the things that the church is currently going through. And Christians facing the fear of death and the numbers that they are right now. Literally thousands have died in the name of Christ this past year. A publication called The Voice of the Martyrs is producing information faster than they ever have as people are being martyred in the name of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Now what we do know is this. It's not new. Since the time of Jesus and arguably even before the time of Jesus, people have been losing their lives in His name. In the Old Testament, the prophets were killed on behalf of God. In the New Testament, after the church was established, Christians lost their lives because of Jesus Christ. It's not new. I'll show you a couple of those stories. You have your Bibles with you? Let's just open up to the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 14, this may very well be the first account of somebody losing their life in the name of Jesus. His name is John. We know him in the familiar sense as John the Baptist. He was the cousin of Jesus. He was the first New Testament prophet tasked with the job of announcing the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior to the entire world. John took it very seriously. He was a unique character. There's no question about that. He lived out in the desert. He was a tourist attraction in his own right. People went out there to see this guy dressed in camel clothing and eating bugs. But moreover, they went out there to hear the message he was preaching. He brought a message of forgiveness, repentance, and forgiveness. He brought the message of hope. The Savior had come, the Messiah had come. People wanted to hear it. John preached with power and conviction as he knew who Jesus was, he preached as well with power and conviction the things of God. That's what got him in trouble. That's what would cost him his life. You see, it wasn't just the things of Christ, grace, mercy, and forgiveness that came out of his mouth. He also talked about the things that were an abomination to God and the things that people shouldn't do. He held on not to the law, but to righteousness, and he preached it. Preached it to anybody that would listen. One of the people that had to listen because he called him out publicly was Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was in charge of all of the holy lands. He was the the most powerful person around, but he had a problem. This was Herod's problem. Herod had an eye for his sister-in-law, started to have an affair with her. John, because of who he was, wouldn't just look the other way, so he called him on the carpet. He, He told everybody what they were doing, but more importantly, he told Herod, stop it this is wrong. That upset Herod, so Herod had him arrested. That wasn't enough for his mistress, Herodias. Isn't that a fun name? Herod and Herodias? Write that on a Christmas card. Send that out. Herodias wasn't happy with him just being in prison. She wanted his life. Through a series of circumstances involving her daughter, she got what she wanted. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 14. We'll start in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, "'This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him.'" Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, "'It's not lawful for you to have her.'" Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. There are strikingly interesting things in this passage. First and foremost, Herod had to have had some guilt, not just on his hands, blood on his hands, but he had to have had some guilt in his heart because of what he had done. When he heard the reports about all that Jesus was doing, he thought, oh no, John the Baptist, come back. That's what I'm up against here. John the Baptist is back. Now then you heard the rest of the account in everything that had happened. He selfishly took John's life. Because of John standing in the kingdom of God, I don't know this to be true. I would suppose it. Had John wanted to, he could have found a way out of prison. God might have delivered him from it. There's no record that John was praying to be delivered from there. He was simply standing by the truth that he had already spoken. He certainly was not going to turn and go the other way from that truth. He wasn't going to bow his knee to Herod and say, Oh, I'm sorry, this applies to everybody but you. That was never going to happen, but I believe supernaturally, John probably could have gotten out of there. That's just my own opinion. That's all it is. John chose instead to stand for his convictions all the way to death. John chose to lose his head because of what he believed. Martyred before Jesus had even died on the cross, martyred before the new church had even started, John lost his life in the name of Jesus. It's an interesting story, and it's true. We can find others in the Bible like this one in the book of Acts. Turn over to Acts chapter 7 with me. Stephen could be put forward as the first martyr of the new church. Jesus had ascended into heaven, the church was established, and Stephen was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of Jesus. He wanted everybody to know who he was, and when he preached, boy, he did it with the same power and conviction that John would, unafraid to convict people of their sin, but to show them what grace and mercy looked like and the fact that Jesus had offered them another way. He preached it to everybody that would listen and he was given a platform much like John so that he could stand before people and say, this is who you are, but this is who Jesus is and you need him. That upset some people in positions of power because Stephen wouldn't back up from what he had to say. He lost his life. Look at this, verse 54 chapter 7. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Man, that's, that's a great story. It inspires me to read things about John the Baptist, to read things about Stephen. It inspires me to hear about these Christians in Mali, Africa, It inspires me to hear the the stories of the Christians that are giving their lives in northern Iraq and Syria when they have been faced with a choice of whether they want to accept Allah as God or continue to worship Jehovah God. They've chosen the right path, they've chosen Jehovah all the way unto death. That's inspiring. We hear about things like that happening overseas, or we read about it in the Bible, and we believe that that's never going to touch us, that we're never going to have to worry about that. Folks, this type of extremism is inside the borders of the United States of America right now. Just six weeks ago, there was a shooter at a college in Oregon who, when he was given audience with the people that he would later kill, he would ask them this question Are you a Christian? And if they said yes, If they said yes, he would say, well, good, you believe in God, you're going to see him in just a few seconds. And he took their lives. This type of thing, exact type of thing, is happening in the United States of America right now. There are other reports of the same type of thing happening. What's been mind-boggling to me out of that as it has touched the United States are the number of Christians that are saying, I don't know what I would do if I was faced with the same choice. I don't know whether I could declare that I was a Christian. I don't know whether with a gun pointed at my head I could say that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ and a believer in Jehovah God. I watched on Facebook. I've read a number of newspaper articles and blogs that have been written by Christians, by Christians that have said they wouldn't. One of them was a professor in one of our Bible colleges. His statement was this. He would be more concerned about not seeing his children grow up than he would be about telling this this terrorist the truth about his relationship with Jesus so he would lie about it. That's a professor from one of our Bible colleges. A lot of other Christians have asked themselves and even publicly declared that they don't know if they're strong enough to do what these folks have been doing. These Christians in Mali, these Christians in Oregon, these Christians in Iraq and Syria and so on that are being killed in record numbers. They just don't know what they would do. I know that among the folks that worship at Libby Christian Church, that's a prevalent question. I I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I would have the strength to do it. So back in August, I, I started exploring exactly how it is that these folks are strong enough to do what they have done. And what I've discovered is that there is at work within them a spiritual attribute that is developed in the life of a believer. That attribute is called meekness. Now, a lot of times we equate meekness with weakness, and it is exactly the opposite of that. Meekness is not weakness, not at all. In fact, meekness is this attribute that allows us to stand in the face of deep persecution, even persecution unto death, and it's an attribute developed within the life of a believer. Definition of meekness sounds just like this, righteousness, humility, teachability, staying strong even in the face of persecution, willing to follow the gospel message, it is an attribute of a true disciple. That's the definition of meekness. Now, we might ask ourselves, is meekness nothing more than humility? Is it just the ability to to say that I don't amount to much or to look at other people and say I don't have any strength on my own? What exactly is meekness that separates it from humility? Humility. Well, humility dwells on self, meekness dwells on others, and in the life of a Christian, meekness dwells on Jesus Christ. It's all about Him, not about me. Humility, though it's a wonderful attribute and one that you want to pursue in your life, humility still draws attention to yourself. Meekness never does. Meekness gives attention to others. Let me show you where it appears in the Bible. We're going to go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see it right in the middle of that list, the list that we call the Beatitudes, attributes that are developed within the life of a believer? Meekness is there. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is this concept, this idea, this attribute that becomes possible for us because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but also because of the disciplines that we apply in our life. We find the the teaching of it getting wrapped around things like this in the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over there with me real quick. 2 Timothy 2. Verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Some translations of the Bible say, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel, instead he must be meek, able to teach, not resentful. But look down at the bottom of this passage. If that type of meekness begins to permeate the life of a believer, they may very well capture the attention of those that are persecuting them, that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now here's what Paul's teaching. In meekness you preach. In meekness, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with everybody, including those that are persecuting. Now imagine this, in Mali, Africa, as these people were going through that hotel room by room and putting a gun to the head of these people and asking them to quote the Koran or considering them Christian and killing them, those that chose to die preached a message. They preached a message of salvation that others might come to their senses That they might escape the trap of the devil. What they've really done is inspire Christians everywhere. Not just with their life, but by their death, they have inspired people because they were willing to follow Jesus all the way to the end. Yet it's still difficult. There's no question about that. No question about that. And it requires a certain strength that we don't always have until we need it. But when we do, that strength is there for us. A great musician named Rich Mullins figured all of this out, and he put it together in a song that Ray and Raina are going to sing for you now. Just listen to the words of this song.
1: I will sing for the meek. For the When the nations fall in in spirit, Paul.
0: they are singing about is captured in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Speaking of the trials that people face, particularly those that have de- developed this concept or attribute of meekness, Peter writes, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Meekness is a part of the refining process that God takes us through so that when questioned about your faith, you can respond appropriately. When faced with things that no one wants to be faced with, you can stand all the way to the point of death. The refiner's fire does that. And by refining us, it brings out this attribute of meekness. As we continue to explore it, here's what we discover Meekness actually positions us to be a part of a miracle. Catch that. Meekness positions us, it'll position you, it'll position me to be used by God as part of a miracle. Go with me again to the Gospels, this time to the Gospel of John. I want to explore a familiar story with you, possibly from a a different perspective. John chapter 6, verse 1. After Jesus heard that John the Baptist had lost his life, that's when this story comes into play. Peter will walk on water after this, just so you get everything lined up right. This is what's going on. John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Pay close attention to verse 6. This is really significant. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, He said to His disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now again, familiar story. But let's pick it apart just a little bit. First, you have to understand this. In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this story is told. That doesn't happen very often. Very few of the Gospel stories are told by all four of the writers. Very few of them captured the attention of all four, but this one did. John is the only one of the writers to tell us who had the bread and the fish. The rest of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, simply tell us that they had bread and fish. But they don't tell us where it came from. John does. It came from this boy. Now, here's the curious thing about that. Maybe it's captured somebody else's attention as well as mine. Was there really only one person there that brought their lunch? Really? 5,000 men were present. They knew they were going to go be gone for the day. They didn't bring anything with them? Really? Only one boy? Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that the disciples went into the crowd to see what they had. It is possible, and now we're in the realm of Phil speculation, but it is possible as they walked through the crowd, a whole bunch of those men that were seated on the grass thought to themselves, yeah, I've got a paper bag full of food up underneath my cloak, but I'm going to eat it. I'm certainly not going to give it to you. And they didn't offer it. This little boy willingly stepped forward and said, here's my lunch. Do with it what you can. God already knew what was going to happen. Jesus was already aware, already aware of the miracle that was going to take place. He just needed the little boy. The little boy stepped out and said, here you go. When all these other people may very well have been selfish, they may very well have reserved what they had just for themselves. The little boy in meekness, because remember what meekness does, it focuses on other people, gives his lunch over to the disciples. The disciples give it to Jesus, and Jesus fed all these thousands of people as much as they wanted. Now, after that was over, can you imagine if you were one of the 4,999 men that sat there on that grass and didn't offer your lunch how you would feel? You were robbed of being a part of the miracle. This little boy, though, he was a part of it because he offered his lunch. In meekness, he offered his lunch. Lord, whatever you need, here you go. I trust you. You just take it. There's a popular author in his telling of this story that recounts an experience in his life when he was in college. He says that he was working in the oil fields to help pay the expenses, made good money. By every definition of the word, he was a roughneck surrounded by roughnecks. His language reflected it, his actions reflected it, his life reflected it. He was living the life of a roughneck. One day at lunch they were all sitting on their lunch boxes after they had finished whatever it is they had brought with them pickup pulled up fell in a white shirt and khaki pants got out of the pickup they knew he was one of the bosses came walking over towards him and they figured he had a job that he wanted them to do he was going to send them on down the road to work on something else so they were all kind of grumbling and kicking the ground a little bit as he approached boy were they surprised instead he walked up to their circle where they were all sitting and kind of started kicking the ground and stuttering over his own words, stumbling around a little bit, and finally he got his thoughts together and he said, hey, my church is having a revival this week. I want to invite you guys to come. Boy, that was a bold move. Walk up to a bunch of oil-working roughnecks and invite him to come to church with you. The author says that as soon as he turned around and headed back to his truck, they all started making fun of him, just mocking him. They, they did it mercilessly. And in fact, it didn't stop after he drove away. All day long, they they were just running him into the ground. And all throughout the course of the week, they were running him into the ground, including the man who writes about it. Four years later, though, his life was a mess, just a mess. He didn't know what to do about it. He remembered that man that had come out to talk to them, invited him to church. He decided to go to church. He decided to go and and see if there wasn't some hope or some promise there. And what he found was a restored relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, because, these are his words, that man gave his lunch to us. On his lunch hour, in meekness, he approached all of these oil workers and invited them to come to church. He gave them his lunch. But more important than that, he gave Jesus his lunch to see what God would do with it. Four years later, a man walked into a relationship with God because of the seeds that were planted by that executive in the oil fields. That's meekness. That's the offering of your lunch. Cool thing is, in the story in John chapter 6, we don't know the boy's name. Bible doesn't record it. Matthew doesn't record it, Mark doesn't record it, Luke doesn't record it, John doesn't record it. We just know that it was a boy that brought those fish with him. We don't know the name of the executive that came out to talk to that group of oil workers. In fact, the author wrote that in a chapter in his book as a letter. And he said, if just by chance you happen to read this written to the oil executive, then please call me, I owe you a lunch. That's that's pretty good. Here's one of the things about meekness. Meekness allows you to be a nameless part of a miracle. It never calls attention to you. It allows you to stay under the radar but be used by God. Just out of curiosity, how many of you know the names of the Christians that were killed in Oregon? How many of you know the names of the Christians that were killed in Mali, Africa on Friday? How many of you know the names of the Christians that have died in northern Iraq and Syria this past 18 months? We don't know their names. Meekness is a nameless attribute that allows you to be used by God in miraculous ways to accomplish His purposes. Though you may not know their names, like me, many of you have had your soul stirred by their stories. That doesn't mean that you want to have a gun pointed at you and ask you whether you're a Christian or not, and if you're not, you're going to die. Although there's a special place in heaven for those that are martyred in the name of Jesus Christ, most of us aren't longing for it. But those that have experienced it, wow, wow, they are a nameless part of a miracle. That happens in some pretty unique ways as you unravel this in Scripture. And I'll show you what I mean. For this, we're going to have to go to the Old Testament. Book of Zephaniah. Now, I know a lot of you are familiar with the book of Zephaniah because you read it all the time. You spend all kinds of devotional hours in the book of Zephaniah, so it won't be hard for you to find. For the rest of us, though, let me just give you a little tip on how to get there. Go to the book of Haggai and turn left, and you'll be in Zephaniah. I mean, it's just easy. Right here in the middle of the Minor Prophets. Actually, it's not. Go to your table of contents. You'll find the book of Zephaniah. That's the easiest way to do this. I want you to because I want you to see this. Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, here's the backstory. The city of Jerusalem is being disciplined by God because of their disobedience. Now, make no mistake about it: God disciplines cities; He disciplines nations. All you have to do is read the Bible to see that, and He's still doing the same thing. God disciplines geographic regions, and we should never be arrogant enough to believe that He doesn't, because the Bible says He does. He is disciplining the nation of, or not the nation, the city of Jerusalem because of their disobedience, their ungodliness. Now, if there is any place that should have had a godly approach, it was the city of Jerusalem, they didn't. So God has decided that He's going to bring some punishment their way. In the midst of all of that, He has reserved for Himself a remnant of believers. God's always done that. He's always held back a remnant of believers that He could use, and that's all He needs. It's powerful. When God reserves a remnant, it's powerful. So we're in chapter 3 of the book of Zephaniah, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Now, here's what the Bible's saying. Through this remnant of people, God is going to change the whole language of the city of Jerusalem Rather than them drawing credit for themselves and focusing only on what they could accomplish, God's going to position them so that they will give credit to Him. He will purify their lips that they may call on the name of the Lord. And then I love the next statement. This is wonderful that they might serve Him shoulder to shoulder. They'll stand with each other and declare who God is. In the realm of martyring, God is still doing the same thing. There's power in Numbers. There's comfort in numbers. When you're standing shoulder to shoulder with other believers headed the same direction, there's a lot of significance in that. So God says when he brings the city of Jerusalem back together, the inhabitants will stand shoulder to shoulder with one another, giving credit to God for what he has done. But all of that is going to happen through the remnant. Skip down to verse 12 with me. But I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down. And listen to this, no one will make them afraid. That's what God's going to do for the remnant. They're going to eat, they're going to lie down, they're going to be taken care of, and no one will make them afraid. When I've read Stephen's story, I've often wondered, about what it was like for him when they started hurling rocks at him. How is it that he was able to look to heaven and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God? How is it that he was able to pray like Jesus, Father, don't hold this against him, don't punish him for this? How could he do that? Well, there it is. God gave it to him. Through meekness, there was no fear because he had developed that attribute There was no fear. And God says that when the remnant needs it, he's going to provide it. Not only will he provide for them everything they need, they will eat and lie down, but he will provide for them a strength beyond themselves. They will not be afraid. For those of you that have questioned what you would do in that situation, you hold on to Zephaniah 3, verse 13. God will give you what you need if you have developed the attribute of meekness. Do you have what it takes to stand on the, the name of Jesus Christ all the way unto death? If you find yourself saying, no, I don't know that I do or I don't think I do, then you trust that God would give it to you when you need it. They will not be afraid because God is with them. You stand shoulder to shoulder with other people in the exact same situation. There's power in that. But it only comes when we develop this attribute of meekness that we might declare who God is. I want to take you back to the Gospels real quick. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Again, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Now that's meekness. When a person acknowledges Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's where meekness begins. One of the most visible places for that to happen is in the waters of baptism. It's a cool thing. That is a place where meekness gets its foothold and and begins to take root within us because we're no longer calling attention to ourselves. We are giving God credit for what He has done in our life. We're saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I want those sins buried and taken care of, and God does all of that, but a lot of what you're doing is declaring what you believe about Jesus Christ, and here's the cool part about that. At that moment, your name is mentioned in heaven. At that moment, your name is before the throne of God, because Jesus says, if you will confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. There's nothing better than that. That's promise of the Bible. If you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So you think about these people in Mali or in Oregon or in Iraq or Syria or all these other places where Christians have died when they have stood before their captors and they have said, I am a Christian. Their name was mentioned in heaven. Jesus looks right at his Father and says, that's one of ours. He's one of ours. She's one of ours. That's a great promise, isn't it? Now what about those that Chose the other path, and they deny Jesus in those moments. Well, you heard what the Bible said. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Could you imagine that judgment hanging over you? I can't. I can't. Even in the face of the things that are happening in our world today, the individual that would say, Gosh, I could just lie to this person and and it's not really going to matter, and then I'll get to see my children grow up, do you know what's at risk? Do you know what you're jeopardizing in that moment? You're denying Jesus before men and running the risk of Him denying you before His Father in heaven. There's a lot at stake there. There really is. Now, the natural question, and I wouldn't blame you at all for asking this, is why is Phil preaching this on the week before Thanksgiving? I told you that this started in August, and I thought it was kind of random to want to preach it today, but all of the, the circumstances that have happened over the course of the last week makes it appear, and I believe this, that it was God's timing so that we can answer questions for people, and they're, they're real, and they're prevalent. So God's timing is always perfect, and I'm happy to be able to do that. But there's another reason, and in order to find it, we have to go back to John chapter 6 and a little boy that offered his lunch to the Lord because I want to challenge you to do the same. This is my Thanksgiving challenge, and I am offering it particularly to men in this congregation, because God put the burden of responsibility of leadership on your shoulders, so I'm offering this to men, and I hope you'll pick it up. On Thursday, families are going to gather all across this community for lunch. Great lunch. We're going to have one at our house, cooked with love by my wife and daughter. My boys and I are going to enjoy it. We're going to hurt ourselves on it. There's no question about it. In fact, it is my goal to eat my body weight that particular day. And <laughs> keep all your comments to yourself. So really, really, really looking forward to that. In fact, we've been talking about this meal for quite some time, excited about it because it, it's just something when Tina and Katie decide to do this. After that's over, in a lot of houses around Libby and Lincoln County, people are going to turn on the football game, and they're going to stretch out on the couch and in recliners and let tryptophan do what it does, and they'll take a nap and and watch the game, do all kinds of different things. Our tradition in our house is the boys and I are going duck hunting. We're going to have a full belly, and we'll be in the boat headed down the river. We duck hunt every Thanksgiving, always look forward to it, so that's what we're going to do. Hopefully, tryptophan doesn't do what it does, and we fall asleep in the boat, that's Kind of a disastrous scenario. But as you're gathering around your tables, I know some of you have traditions where you ask everybody what they're thankful for, and that's a great thing. But that is easily lost sight of by Friday when everybody's Christmas shopping and looking for the best deals. We, we lose sight of the things that we're thankful for. This year, my challenge to you is this, to offer your lunch to the Lord. Now, I don't mean don't eat it. I don't mean give it away. I mean, sit around your table and talk about those that are giving their lives in the name of Jesus Christ. In ways that maybe you have never talked about with your family before, you talk about what it means. Dads, you answer some fears for your kids. You answer fears for your wives. You talk about what it means for these Christians to be persecuted the way they are. Maybe you want to read back through the Beatitudes. That'd be a great thing out of Matthew chapter 5. You lead your family in the word of God and then pray together. You pray for the people that are being persecuted for their faith. You pray for those that are dying. It is just one of the simple ways that we can stand shoulder to shoulder with other people that are going through things that are inconceivable to us, but we can be a part of what they're dealing with. And there's power in your prayers. There's power when families come together and pray that way. You purify your lips according to Zephaniah chapter 3 and put the things of God on them and lead your family in a time of prayer for others that are dying for their faith. Give up your lunch or just a little tiny portion of that time to be able to do what the Bible tells us we're supposed to do. A few minutes ago, Ray and Reina stood up here and they sang about singing for the meek and praying for the meek. And that's exactly what Rich Mullins was telling us to do in that song. Do the same thing. Sing for the meek through your prayers. Dads, this is my challenge to you. Men, this is my challenge to you. Pick it up. See what happens and become a part of the miracle, a nameless part of the miracle. Those people over in the the Mideast that may lose their lives this week, they're never going to know your name, but you stood shoulder to shoulder with them. Become a part of it. That's meekness. That's the development of meekness within your life. The people in this country that may well lose their life in the coming year, in the name of Jesus Christ, will be emboldened by your prayers. Become a nameless part of the miracle in meekness, because the time may come when you're doing the same thing, faced with the same thing, and you need others to be praying for you. Give up a small portion of your lunch just to pray. Dad, you see what happens when you lead your family in ways that maybe you've never led them before. Listen to the conversation around the table. Listen to the hearts of those that you love and care about, and then lead them in prayer. Shoulder to shoulder with other people. And let's see what happens. Let's see what takes place as a result of it. A little boy would say, Here's my lunch. Look what God did with it. What happens when 200 families in Libby choose to pray a certain way, shoulder to shoulder with one another? Changes the world we live in. It really does. This morning, you may think to yourself, I I still don't know what I would do. Maybe you wonder if you even have a relationship with the Lord. If you find yourself saying, gosh, there's no way in the world I would tell an Islamic extremist standing in front of me that I believe in Jesus Christ, then you need to look hard and fast at your relationship with Him. Determine exactly what it looks like. Because Jesus would say, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. You deny me before men. And I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. You take a hard look. Ask yourself some difficult questions. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, change that today. Maybe you need to be baptized and you never have been. Why don't you do something about that today? The water's warm. We have clothes in the back. There's no excuses. It might mess up your hair, but it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> do what you need to do and let God do what only He can. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, I am so thankful that this invitation is not ours, it's yours. I pray that people will respond to it, not because we offer it, but because you do. And I pray, Lord, that they'll find a relationship that they value all the way unto death. Together as a church, we're praying for those that are facing things that that we can't even imagine. Father, make them bold. Let their nameless voice be heard, not just by those that stand in front of them, but by the world. The same way John's was and Stephen's was, let their voice be heard and inspire others to love you with all that they have, even unto death. Thank you for being in this place with us, but thank you more for leaving this place with us, standing beside us all the time. Thank You, Lord, for what You offer and what we can accept in You. In Jesus' name, amen.